And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will bring it to pass. Let's bow our heads together to begin our study this evening with a word of prayer. Silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come to you in prayer. We know that Scripture promises that if we ask anything according to the name that is in relationship to the essence and character of our Lord Jesus Christ and in line with your plan, that you hear us. And this is the confidence that we have that anything we ask and you hear us, we know that you will grant our request. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us this evening. We know that we have the filling of the Spirit, who is our teacher, our guide, the one who illuminates our thinking to the truths of Scripture. He is the one who applies these truths to our lives. Father, we thank you that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we can understand these things in your word and be challenged by them. So we pray that we would have concentration and objectivity as we study your word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. <coughs> and we'll do a little review from where we were last time. James 4, in this section, from James 4.1 down through 4 6, he is describing the problems in the congregation. They are disrupted, there are divisions, there are quarrels, there's conflicts, there's antagonism between members, they're dominated by lust patterns, they are not operating on the truths of Scripture, they're not applying Scripture, learning Scripture. That's why the first thing James had to do was address the issue of being quick to hear. That if you haven't made learning the Word of God the number one priority in your life, then this is going to be the result. You're going to be miserable You're never going to get anywhere in life. There are going to be all kinds of problems that upset you, problems that create stress in your soul, and your life will just deteriorate further and further until you collapse out of absolute misery. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that we go through divine discipline, and God is absolutely fair in the way He disciplines each of us, and He tailors that discipline to just exactly what each one of us needs. So James is calling them to correction at this point, and he is going to get into the details of that correction beginning in verse 7. But in verses 4 through 6, he is dealing with some of the underlying issues and underlying principles that they need to address. Up to this point, he has addressed them as fellow believers. He calls them brethren. My beloved brethren. Over and over again, he has repeated this term And this tells us that he views his readers as believers. But all of a sudden, when he comes to this passage, 
he uses this term adulteresses. Now, the one reason he uses the term adulteress is because this indicates, instead of porneia, which would indicate an uh, immoral sexual relationship between two people who aren't married, an, an adultery is sexual sin, sexual intimacy between two people, one of whom is married to someone else. And that involves a contractual relationship that is broken. Now, the fact that they are believers, when they get into carnality and they are obeying the sin nature and following the sin nature, they have broken their covenant, their relationship with God. And so they are being unfaithful to God, with the God with whom they are in a contractual relationship. So this indicates that they are believers. The other reason that adulteress is used instead of calling them adulterers, a masculine form, the reason the feminine form is used is because in this relationship you have God the Father represented as the husband to the church, which is the bride of Christ. So God is represented in the masculine role and these unfaithful believers are pictured in the feminine role and they are covenant breakers with God because they are in carnality. So it has to do with the, uh, the second reason. Adulterers, first of all, because it indicates they are uh, in a new covenant relationship with God based on the cross, Jesus Christ's substitutionary death. And then secondly, because uh, they are responders and viewed in the feminine as the bride of Christ. So the the address to adulteresses, and then the principle. Do you not know, and it assumes, by the way, the question is asked, it uses the Greek negative ouk. Now, in Greek, there are two different ways to express negation. There's two different words for no. There is the Greek word ouk and the Greek word may. And ouk, when you have a question and you use ouk, then you expect an affirmative answer. If you use may, then you expect a negative answer. So when he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? He is assuming the answer is yes, which means they know better. These are believers who have been taught. They understand basic principles of their relationship with the Lord. They should have understood basic principles about homardiology and the believer's sin and what happens when the believer goes down the path of extended carnality, which is what we call reversionism. So the answer is an expected yes. They do know this, but they have rejected the principle and they are in violation. They get into the trap that oftentimes believers get into, and that is a trend towards antinomianism and licentiousness. You see, if most of us have a trend in one way or the other. Asceticism on the one hand, antinomianism, licentiousness, lasciviousness on the other hand. People on this side of the, of the sin nature, those who have a tendency towards legalism, also trend towards self-righteousness. And so they have a trend towards emphasizing morality. They like rules and regulations and they make a big deal about it whenever somebody violates those and they have a very sensitive conscience and usually get caught up in all kinds of guilt 
whenever they personally violate their standards. On the other hand, there are those who are who have a trend towards antinomianism and licentiousness. Now, these people are usually a lot of fun to be around, but they also get in a lot of trouble. And one of the things that happens when you get a crowd of, uh, of believers who have a trend towards licentiousness is there's a tendency to try to excuse their sin and to utilize 1 John 1, 9 as some sort of license. Well, it really doesn't matter. God's going to forgive me anyway. Christ paid the penalty on the cross. And they forget that sin always has consequences. No matter what that act might be, it always involves some consequences, sometimes small, sometimes great, sometimes it's an overt consequence, but often it is a negative consequence. It eats away at your soul and has a tremendous devastating consequence on your soul. It will harden your soul. We'll study this in in reversionism, that the heart is hardened, the Scripture says. And that's like scar tissue. It desensitizes you to, to sin. And see, we forget the fact that, that our Lord in hypostatic union did not come into contact with sin other than externally. He did not sin. And one of the things as I've been studying ahead in the Gospel of John, and we'll see this develop more and more, is we come to those difficult passages when the Lord looks, He's troubled deeply. We're going to see this Sunday morning how troubled He is in His soul as He anticipates the cross. And the night before He went to the cross, when He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and He's praying, and He is so caught up in such turmoil in His soul that He's sweating blood. And then he prays, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. He just wants to avoid the cross so, so much. And we have a hard time assimilating that because we get this superficial, silly idea in Christianity that if you're walking with the Lord, everything's going to be fine and there's not going to be any real struggle or turmoil in the Christian life because you've got the peace that passes understanding, right? And that's the idea. But when you look at the Lord, he was obviously perfect. He never sinned. He never thought about it in his entire life on the earth. So what was it that caused the Lord to be so troubled in his soul? What caused the Lord to sweat bullet, sweat blood before he went to the cross? What caused the Lord to pray intensely that the Father would let this go past? Because the perfectly righteous second Adam in his true humanity was going to come in contact with sin on the cross. And that was going to be a devastatingly painful. It wasn't that he was afraid of the physical suffering that he would endure when they crucified him. He wasn't afraid of the flogging. The physical pain was just infinitesimal compared to the spiritual misery he would endure for those three hours on the cross when he paid the penalty for our sins. And we forget in our familiarity with sin how horrible sin is towards God and how destructive its effects are. So the person who has a trend towards licentiousness and lasciviousness can rationalize his sin and make light of it because after all it's paid for. Uh, I'm going to go to heaven. I have forgiveness. I can just confess it. And yet the Scripture tells us that we need to take this very seriously 
because this sort of lackadaisical attitude towards sin is described as friendship with the world. And the term world here is cosmos, which means ultimately the root of it has the idea of some sort of orderly, systematic way of thinking. And so cosmic, the cosmic thinking here has to do with the entire way in which you approach life. It's your, your framework, your assumptions, your presuppositions about life, your world view. It is not simply the activities that you engage in. So it's an orderly, systematic way of thinking and that we are challenged in this passage that if our friendship is with the world, an attractiveness with the world, then that is antagonism towards God. So we either have human viewpoint or divine viewpoint. There's only ultimately two ways to look at things. There may be uh, 50 ways to leave your lover, but there are basically only one human viewpoint system. There may be a hundred different philosophies. There may be 200 different world religions, but there's only one human viewpoint system. They all are different manifestations of basically the same way of man asserting his own autonomy that somehow I'm going to find a solution to my problems. I'm going to make life work and I'm going to find tranquility, happiness, and peace in this life without having to depend exclusively on the grace of God. And see, that's what divine viewpoint is. God says there's only one way, and you have to be 100% dependent upon my provisions, my promises, and the principles that are outlined in God's Word. And that's why it's stressed over and over again that we have to have the thinking in us of Jesus Christ. We have to renew our thinking. We have to learn not only to think the content that Jesus thought, but we have to learn how to think the way he thought. So that when we encounter a problem, the first thing that ought to come into our mind is what is God's way of analyzing this problem? What is the cause and the root of the problem? And how am I to address it in terms of the promises of God's Word? How do his attributes relate to these problems? If you think about the Psalms, so often in the Lament Psalms, which is a particular category of psalm, David will be crying out about how his enemies surround him. He is presenting some situation where he feels hemmed in and oppressed and and mistreated or uh, uh, some kind of adversity in life. And then he cries out to God to deliver him. And if you analyze those those petition and praise sections, and when we get into our study uh, starting in three or four weeks and Sunday morning and Instead of Galatians, after we finish Galatians and we get into an overview of, of uh, the Old Testament, we'll get into the different kinds of psalms. But in those lament psalms, David basically goes through and he lists out the various attributes of God. He'll remind himself of God's faithfulness. He'll remind himself of God's righteousness. He'll remind himself of God's omnipotence. And then after he rehearses these attributes of God in light of his problem... Then he draws a conclusion, and that conclusion is that he praises God and he relaxes in his mentality. So that is one of the things that we have to drill ourselves on, is how to look at life from God's viewpoint, how to analyze 
applies every situation so that that becomes an automatic knee-jerk response and we begin to apply it. So James warns us and uh, is a, uh, confronting the, his readers that they have become unfaithful to God. They have broken their fellowship with God. They're in carnality. In fact, they're in reversionism. Do you not know that friendship with the world is antagonism towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You only have one of two options there. That when you are in fellowship with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit, at that point you are a friend of God. This is the friend of God category right here. If you are a friend of the world, then you go out here, and when you're out here in carnality, you are hostile to God and you are an enemy of God. Now that was our introduction last time and a little review, and then we got into the doctrine of reversionism, and I want to review the opening points here. First of all, every human being is born with a sin nature, and all his deeds, thoughts, and words proceed from that sin nature. So even though you may be producing a lot of morality and a lot of human good, and you may be going to church on a regular basis, reading your Bible every day, having your devotional time, prayer time, reading through uh, whatever the literature may be, light on the path, or whatever is popular at the time, if you're not in fellowship, then it's all human good and it proceeds from the sin nature. After the salvation, the believer is freed from the dominion of sin. We no longer have are under the tyranny of sin as a dictator. We now have a true option to either abide by this, uh, follow the dictates of the sin nature or rebound, confess our sins, name our sins to God the Father through... Uh, the use of 1 John 1, 9, admit, acknowledge our sin, and then we are saved from the power of sin through sanctification. Point number two, all sins can be classified as either pre-salvation sins or post-salvation sins. The solution for all sin is found in the cross where the payment, which is the redemption price, is paid through the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. Forgiveness for all pre-salvation sins takes place at the cross. So every sin you commit between birth and accepting Christ as your Savior is paid for or is forgiven at that point. The cross pays the price for all your sins. But after the cross, when you sin, you still violate the perfect character of God. Your relationship, your rapport with God is broken. You do not lose your salvation. You simply have, have grieved or quenched the Holy Spirit, and so you are out of fellowship. And the way to recover fellowship is 1 John 1, 9, and then you can go forward in the spiritual life. Point number three. When the believer is growing, advancing in the spiritual life, he still commits sin. None of us are without sin, and if you think that you are, then you're deceiving yourselves and the truth is not in you, 1 John 1, 8. When you confess sin, you're restored to fellowship so you can keep moving. Keeping moving is the issue. The issue is not simply confessing your sin so that you can be restored to fellowship and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it merely brings you back into this position. It is not simply a static position. Oh, good, now I'm filled with the Spirit, so whatever happens will automatically be the result of the Holy Spirit. 
You have to walk. That means you have to exercise your volition. We saw that in Galatians 5.16. Walk by means of the Spirit. A present active imperative. And the active tense, uh, active tense or active voice indicates that you as a believer are to engage your volition and you are to be the one who is making that moment-by-moment decision to apply doctrine. Until, of course, you decide not to, then you're out of fellowship, and then you have to immediately recover. Point number four, failure to rebound leaves you out here in carnality under the control of the sin nature, a friend of the world and an enemy toward God. If that continues unchecked, if you're out of fellowship for more than two or three minutes, then what happens is you you begin to lose all your forward momentum in the spiritual life. Everything begins to slow down rapidly and grind to a halt. I used to think the spiritual life was like driving uphill in a car that has no brakes and you can either put it in drive or in neutral. (laughs) So you're either going forward or you're backing up, but you can't stay still. And what happens in, in carnality here is that your natural tendency of the flesh automatically has taken over and all of its lust patterns are moving you in the direction of self-indulgence and uh, all of the arrogant skills. So you get out here in a position of carnality, you are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, and you are basically deciding that, saying, whether you articulate it as such or not, that you know what's best for your life, you are smarter than God, and that you can make all of the decisions and you don't really need Bible doctrine or God to make your life work. Failure to rebound leaves the believer under sin nature control, and this begins a process of reversing the direction of the believer's life. That is why the term reversionism is used, because you are reversing course as a believer. You have been going forward and now you are in reverse, and you are backing up. How does this begin? Point number five. Reversionism often begins in the context of a test. I would almost say always, because almost every time you make a volitional decision, it's in relation to a test. You have to make a decision. Some circumstance presents itself to apply doctrine or not. That's a test. It may be a Major test, it may be a minor test, it may be adversity, it may be prosperity, but every situation involves a choice, and if you choose negative volition, that begins things. And you may be in a situation of either uh, adversity, some sort of external pressure on the soul that you have no control over, or it may be prosperity, which may be the blessing of God in your life, and now you become complacent. But this is one of these two circumstances, and it causes you to uh, react towards doctrine. You are reacting in terms of simple negative volition. You're out, out of fellowship, but things seem to be going pretty well, so you think you can rely upon human resources. This is one of the major problems with prosperity. Now, most of us joke, and we just think that it would be wonderful if the Lord gave us a prosperity test. Not too long ago, I told about one of our tapers, who's an old friend of mine, and and about ten years ago, he didn't have very much. He wasn't sure where his next paycheck was coming from. And now he is uh, 
uh, he can't figure out how to spend all the money that God's given him. And he told me that, um, you know, some of us wish we had that problem, but he said, you know, Robbie, ten years ago, I listened to at least two tapes a day. I never missed doctrine. I had to hold on to the grace of God every single day. And now there's so many distractions in life. There are so many wonderful things that I can do and spend my time doing that I really have to work at it. And sometimes I don't even get a tape in on a particular day, but then I know I'm in trouble. So, see, you can start reacting to that prosperity or adversity, become complacent, think you have it made, that you really don't need God as desperately because everything is really good and you've got a lot of money in the bank or or whatever it is that that, uh, makes you happy and uh, your house is paid for, you've got your retirement plan fully funded, and now you don't have to sweat that anymore. So you begin to relax and you become complacent in the spiritual life. Now, I find that this happens in various stages in people's lives. I find that, let's uh, put this on a graph. This is the chart of, of, uh, maybe I ought to do it this way. See, this way I get to use up a lot of plastic and and, uh, on the overhead and make Al work a little extra hard. We're going to draw this line on an upward slant as a as a dashed line indicating the potential growth of the spiritual life. And at this point, you trust Christ as your Savior, so we'll put a cross at the bottom of the line. What happens is, at this point, you have... Usually, I find people have been prepared for the gospel, and often they're in a state of misery, and God has brought them to a place where they realize that they have nothing to rely on on their own. So they come to the cross and they're excited, they're happy, they trust Christ and now they're going to go to heaven and they have all kinds of questions related to life. What's heaven going to be like? What's the future like? How do I know this is the Bible? How do I know I can trust it? What about good works? How do I live the Christian life? What about suffering? All kinds of questions just bubble over and they have a certain level of intellectual curiosity. And I would say during spirit, I'm going to call this whole time period here just spiritual childhood. And during spiritual childhood, you are driven by a certain amount of intellectual curiosity trying to figure out what the Bible is all about, what the basic principles are, what God has for you, and what God's plan for your life is. And let's say you start off and you've been in a position where you realize that that you had really blown things in your own life, and so you begin to grow, and as you advance through spiritual childhood, and you get ready to go into spiritual adolescence, a lot of your questions have now been answered. See, when you were young and dumb and you didn't know the answers to any of the questions, you really liked coming to Bible class three or four or five times a week because you were driven by this hunger that was intellectual curiosity. But once you began to get your questions satisfied and you began to realize a little uh, uh, of God's contingent blessings in your life because you put on some spiritual growth and developed a little capacity, then it's easy to become complacent. 
Now you're not driven by that intellectual curiosity anymore because you've read through the Bible a few times. And frankly, you ought to be reading through the Bible. I don't think I say that enough. They have these Bibles, uh, one, read the Bible in a year, broken down so you can read a little bit every day. And I think it's important for believers to constantly do that. Now, you're not going to get the kind of spiritual nourishment out of that that is going to provide for your spiritual growth. But you're going to get a biblical frame of reference. See, it used to be you really didn't have to tell people to do that because they got so much instruction in the general culture. and They grew up hearing Bible stories in church, and most people were biblically literate. But most people today, most Christians, are biblically illiterate. And they don't know the difference between Jehu and Jehoshaphat. And they don't know the difference between Jehoram and Joram. And they don't understand why Nebuchadnezzar attacked Israel and took them out under the fifth cycle of discipline. Or the difference between the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. Or the Philistines at Abraham's time. Or, or why Moses and the, and the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And everybody used to know that kind of stuff. They knew there were 66 books in the Bible, 27 in the New Testament, 39 in the Old Testament. They knew what the major divisions of the Old Testament were in the New Testament and who all the key players were. But people today don't know that because they don't read their Bible. So you really need to read your Bible. And so you've read your Bible and you understand the framework. You've gone through various seminars and everything. And now you slip into adolescence. And the motivation down here was intellectual and spiritual curiosity. I don't mean intellectual curiosity here in the, in the raw sense of just gnosis or academic truth, but just getting your questions answered about God and basic doctrine. As you move into spiritual adolescence, because your intellectual curiosity is being satiated, you now have to have a greater motivation. That's why by the time you get up here into spiritual adulthood, what motivates you is your personal love for God that has been developed from the basic problem-solving devices or stress busters, which you manage to to, uh, uh, master in spiritual childhood. Spiritual adolescence, you go through your um, personal sense of your eternal destiny, and this is the transition stage in spiritual growth. And your motivation is going to shift. And what happens is a lot of people bail out of the spiritual life at that point, Because they can't make the transition from the motivation of spiritual immaturity to the motivation of spiritual maturity. Because we can't see God. You only know God because you've learned basic principles about God. And that's awfully abstract. But if you don't come to fall in love with God through understanding the principles of Scripture, then you're never going to make it into spiritual adulthood. And what happens is, is people become complacent right around spiritual adolescence, their intellectual curiosity is satiated. They don't really learn anything more when they come to to Bible class. They've heard about dispensations and eschatology, and they know the terminology, and they've read a couple of books by Lewis Berry Chafer or Charles Ryrie and all of Pastor Thiem's books. And so they think they have it together, and they are just put a big bullseye on their back for Satan to take a shot at, and he has, and now they tube it, right out into carnality and complacency. And they think they've got it all together and they don't really need uh, the Lord as much anymore because they've sort of reached this plateau. 
And so what happens is they get into carnality. They forget to confess. They forget to use the stress busters. They forget to utilize the assets, all the spiritual assets that God has given the believer in the church age. They begin to rely upon other things such as counseling and psychology and uh, uh, sociology and all kinds of other things to provide solutions to life's problems. They forget to rely upon the uh, complete sufficiency of grace in God's Word and the sufficiency of the cross. So they begin to slip into reverse and they start going back downhill. And see, this can happen at any stage. You go through spiritual childhood, some people don't have a whole lot of questions. Uh, used to make me rather bilious when I would hear people say, well, I don't care whether I have a mansion in heaven or a slum just as I'm there. Well, that's a lukewarm believer who's not motivated whatsoever, doesn't have a clue what the spiritual life is, and thinks that God is just going to be satisfied with their mediocrity. And we have to remember that God has called us to a pursuit of excellence to advance all the way to spiritual maturity so that we can then begin to glorify Him. You see, don't you think it's interesting that in life, in regular everyday life, from the time you were one and you start having a few thoughts in your head until the time you were about 24 or 25, you couldn't wait to be an adult. Because you knew that that's where real life was, was adulthood, wasn't in childhood, wasn't in adolescence. It was in adult and having all of the privileges and freedoms and responsibilities of being an adult. It's the same way in the spiritual life. But I'm amazed how many Christians are willing to to stay spiritual infants or adolescents and never get to where the real action is in the spiritual life, which is spiritual adulthood. We sit back here in diapers or running around in short pants waiting for the Lord to... uh, to do something for us instead of advancing all the way to spiritual maturity. And the result is always carnality and complacency and then reversionism. So point number six was reversionism is defined as the believer's love affair with the cosmic system and rejection of God's grace system. At this stage, you fall in love with the world, cosmic love, and that is... The flip side of that is hostility towards God. You can't be in love with the world without being antagonistic to God. What happens in point number seven? In reversionism, the believer evacuates the soul fortress, which is provided by the ten stress busters, and he seeks solace and comfort and solutions in the doctrine, values, and lifestyle of the cosmic system. Point number eight. In carnality, the believer is simply living under the dictates of the sin nature, his own lust patterns, and he no longer, and in reversionism, he no longer cares to recover from carnality. And that brought us to the eight stages of reversionism. Stage number one was reaction and distraction. We react to some circumstance in life, and we let either the... the, uh, uh, suffering, the, ad, the suffering we're going through in adversity or the pleasure we're experiencing in the prosperity distract us from making doctrine the number one priority in our life. So we begin to, if we're going through suffering, we begin to focus on something else. We focus on the problem 
instead of the solution. And that means we end up going into arrogance. We begin to focus on our own, uh, what's going on in our own life, and we get into self-pity, and we get into a lot of self-absorption, and we begin the spiral for the arrogance complex. So we'll write self-absorption down here because that goes along with distraction and it becomes the focus for the soul. The second thing then becomes frantic search for happiness. We become self-absorbed. We want to be self-indulgent. So we develop a frantic search for happiness and we have to find some meaning, something that gives definition and value to our lives. So we look for something in the created order. Man always seeks to deify creation. Romans 1 says, Professing to be wise, they became fools, worshiping the creator rather than the, the uh, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And we look to the created order. We look to things. We look to people. We look to money. We look to circumstances. The big one today is we look for the the internal emotions. Then somehow that becomes the source of happiness and stability and meaning in life. So we get on a frantic search for happiness. We suck in all the false systems of thinking that are out there, whether it's rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. And then we start building our life based on these false concepts and we become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, 2 Timothy 3.4. We look to power, we look to influence, approbation, recognition, uh, personal recognition, success, status symbols, money, pleasure, social life, friends, health, sex. All of these things individually or in combination becomes objects of our happiness. And we are no longer content with the Lord and we put our focus on things in the created order. But sooner or later, it becomes bankrupt. In the Psalms we read that the backslider gets bored with his ways. So we enter into some sort of emotional bankruptcy there and we get bored and we look for something else. And this is stage three. This is about where we stopped last time in Operation Boomerang. And we use this term because a boomerang is a weapon that the aborigines in Australia developed so that when they throw it at the object that they're hunting, if it misses, it'll spin around and return to them. And so what happens is we take a shot here at money. Money is going to give us happiness and meaning in life. All of a sudden we miss. Money doesn't do it. We get frustrated, so it comes right back. We take another shot. This time we're going to look at fame. Well, fame plays out on us. There's no solution there. So it boomerangs back. We take another shot. Now we're going to look at sex. And then drugs. Then alcohol. Maybe the other way around. Then we're going to look at, uh, oh, I'm going to get on the moral bandwagon. Sometimes you get a reaction that sets in. And after you've gone through a lot of licentiousness here, then you decide to have a, a religious conversion. So now we're going to try to find happiness through religious experience. And we're going to uh, satisfy all that guilt that we've built up. And we're going to get involved in some kind of a religious system. 
where we can uh, make ourselves feel good because we're gaining the approbation of God by all of the things we're giving up and all the things we're wonderful things that we're doing for people. So in this stage, we have gone from self-absorption up here in phase one, reaction, distraction, to self-indulgence in the frantic search for happiness. And now we're down here into into uh, moving through an intensified stage of self-indulgence down to stage four where we're going to develop self-justification. We have to justify what we've done and this is the emotional revolt of the soul. Now this is about where we stopped last time. In emotional revolt, the emotions start dictating to the soul. In the soul you have self-consciousness, Mentality, emotion, volition, and a conscience where your norms and standards reside. The mentality is designed to be the initiator, the driving force of decision-making in the soul. The emotions are the responder. Now, I want to make this clear. Emotions are not responding to external circumstances. Get that down. Emotions are not responding to external circumstances. I think this is something that has been miscommunicated or misunderstood a lot. The emotions are not independent from the cognition in the mind. What the emotions are responding to is the interpretation of external circumstances presented by the mentality of the soul. The emotions are always responding to what's going on in the mentality. Now, back up. Most of you were here Sunday morning. We talked about the fact that there's no such thing as an autonomous fact. Remember, Jesus resuscitated Lazarus on the fourth day after he had died. He came out from the grave and the Pharisees, he didn't do it. Pharisees completely rejected it. Facts didn't mean anything to them because there's no such thing as a raw, neutral, uninterpreted fact. As soon as something happens, your brain automatically starts to interpret the fact. If I come running in here and I tell you that you're, tell one of the parents here that their little three-year-old daughter has just run out across the highway here and been run over by a semi-truck, what emotions do you have? Those, that emotional response is a response to what you believe to be true. You believe it just happened. Then, Five minutes later, I come in and I say, oh, sorry, it really didn't happen. Now you believe something else is true about reality, and you have a different set of emotions. Relief, joy, flood your soul, happiness, ecstasy. The emotions are a response to what's going on in the mentality of your soul. So if your mentality is leading and initiating where Bible doctrine is the dominant thinking of the mentality, then the response in your emotions is going to be uh, positive and constructive. But if the mentality is dominated by human viewpoint, then the emotions are going to be, because human viewpoint is not stable, only God is stable. That is what immutability is about. God never changes. He never gets weak. He never becomes unstable. So it's only when we have a bedrock of stability that we can have stable emotions. But when uh, we're controlled by human viewpoint, then our emotions are going to be unstable. And the further we go into carnality, the more unstable our emotions become until there is a reverse 
of this process. And instead of the mentality being the driver and initiator in the soul and the criterion for life being established or being settled by establishment principles or doctrinal principles, what happens is uh, emotion begins to dictate and emotions become the criterion for life. And you start asking you start asking questions like, well, how do you feel about that? How did that make you feel? You ever notice the parody of psychologists in, in any kind of sitcom? Somebody comes in and sits down. They immediately start asking, well, what happened? Well, such and so. Well, how do you feel about that? It's not what do you believe? How do you interpret reality? It's always how do you feel? And you, you hear ourselves do it in conversation all the time. You hear some, some event happens. Well, what do you feel about that? It's never thinking, it's feeling. Over and again, our common everyday idiom emphasizes feeling as that criterion. And that's the emotional revolt. And when emotion begins to dictate, at this stage you get into pure subjectivity. Because you have been operating on self-absorption here. Developing that into self-indulgence. And then with self-justification, you're becoming divorced from reality. You're now reinterpreting reality so that the bad is good and the good is bad. And that is pure subjectivity. And then that, in turn, is going to lead to self-deception. And self-deception is where you have graduated into complete almost irreversible subjectivity because now you're so divorced from reality that when you see black, you say white. When you see white, you say black. And you can't understand somebody who comes and starts teaching objective truth because it just seems so radically different to everything else that you're doing in life that you're so divorced now from from truth that you're in complete uh, confusion. And this leads to... Uh, the fifth stage, which is hardened negative volition. Hardened negative volition. This doesn't mean that you can't reverse. There's always recoveries. We'll see in the... But at this stage... Recovery through the grace principle of 1 John 1.9 becomes less and less likely. Now, when we were looking at emotional revolt of the soul, I want to read a couple of verses to you. Romans 16.18 says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And that is the Greek word koilea, which sometimes means simply the womb, Sometimes it means the belly, but it often represents the internal desires and affections or emotions in the soul. So it talks about those lustful desires and appetites, which we would call emotions. And so we become slaves to our emotions rather than of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads to hardened negative volition. And then that leads to the sixth stage which is a blackout of the soul. This is when the believer is now covered in darkness. 
experientially. He is walking in darkness. He's never in the light. He has separated himself from Bible class. Uh, never gets involved with the truth because what happens somewhere around stage 5 and 6 is you begin to look somewhere else for your friends, for your associates, because it's too uncomfortable for you to be around these people who are always putting their focus on God and talking about doctrine. Ephesians 4.17 talks about this as the futility of the mind. It is developing a vacuum in the soul where the soul is just sucking in all false thinking that it can. Ephesians 4.17, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. That is, don't live like unbelievers in the emptiness or the futility or the vacuum of their mind. So at this stage, the believer moves from a covert to an overt alignment with human viewpoint thinking. At this stage, he becomes an enemy of the cross. At this stage, a believer may say, well, I don't really believe that stuff anymore. I don't think that Christianity is just an opiate for the masses, as Karl Marx said. Or who was it recently? Some governor said something about it being just something that the weak people need in order to make it through life. Uh, That is characteristic of overt alignment with human viewpoint thinking. Walking in the darkness, 1 John 1, 6, 2, 11. And uh, the Scripture uses various terms for this. Hardening the heart, hardening the neck, hardening the face. Uh, Proverbs 21, 29 to 31. Nehemiah 9, 16 through 17. And at this point, the believer is undistinguishable from a believer. The un- the, um, for all intents and purposes, he looks and acts like an unbeliever. You can't tell any difference between him and the unbeliever. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, notice the parallel with our passage in James. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is a love for God. So at this stage, you don't have any love for God anymore. All of your love is towards something in the created order, and you have completely reversed all of your affections. This leads then to point seven, or stage seven, which is scar tissue in the soul. Scar tissue in the soul, which is a calloused conscience, conscience, a callous soul, uh, scar tissue, it's also called hardening hardening of the heart in John 14.20. And this stage, the, the believer res- completely resists the uh, uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit. He is completely resistant to doctrine and sets his... The Scripture portrays it setting your neck, setting your head, just bowing your shoulders, setting your direction firmly against God. And this culminates in the final process, which is complete, where the complete reversal... See, what's happened is you've gone this way, and we've described the characteristics as you turn your life around, and then you start heading back in the opposite direction. So you start off with one, two, three, four... Five, all the way around until by the time you get to eight, you're completely pointed 
in the opposite direction. It doesn't happen overnight, but there's always a corrected. Reverse process, reversionism, this is where believers are called, they're said to leave your first love in Revelation 2, 4 through 5. They're called the enemy of God in our passage of James 4.4, enemy of the cross, Philippians 3.18, a hater of God in John 15.23, and they're called double-minded or fragmented in James 1.8. So this describes the whole process of reversionism, but there is recovery. There is recovery, and that's what James is going to address starting in verse 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. All of these imperatives are addressed to the volition of the believer. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is 1 John 1.9, confession. We'll take all of this apart when we get there. But I just want to make the point that as long as you're alive, God has a plan for your life. No matter how much you have failed, no matter how many bad decisions you've made in life, there's always the opportunity for grace recovery. There is nothing we can do in life that is too great for the grace of God or the power of God to reverse the process so that we can begin to recover and go back in the direction of spiritual growth. And the issue, again, always comes down to studying the Word of God and learning the Word of God and letting our thinking be transposed. So now that we have come to the issue of thinking, let's look again at the whole issue of cosmos Thinking, or cosmic thinking. How did this develop? Point number one, we need to realize that this term cosmic, or cosmos, relates to uh, the devil's domain, which is planet earth. Satan is called the prince in the power of the air. He is the god of this age. And he is the one who is in control of the earth right now. And so all of the systems of cosmic thinking no matter how many there might be, they ultimately all relate to Satan's, Satan's uh, domain and they are all undergirded by the same arrogance that he expressed in his fall that he could be like God. Satan gained his first victory in the Garden of Eden when he convinced Adam to reject God's decree that if you eat from the fruit, you will die. He said, Adam, how do you know that? So Adam decided that he could only know truth on the basis of empiricism. He couldn't know truth on the basis of revelation. So he rejected God's revelation and that set the course and he ends up in sin. Notice I'm not dealing with Eve's temptation because hers wasn't the fundamental issue. She was deceived, but it was Adam who sinned willfully And it's in Adam I'll die, not in Eve I'll die. Adam's sin was willful, and so Satan gained his first victory by convincing Satan to think about his environment differently than the way God had interpreted his environment. Adam was placed in the garden. There were all these trees there, and, and there were certain things Adam could have learned about his environment, and I'm sure there were some things that Adam did learn about his environment empirically, just through observation and looking around. He could tell what color things were, and he could tell that there were a lot of animals, diverse number of species, and they were all paired up in male and female, and he named them. Uh, we're going to do some study of what all is entailed there, but I think at the very least, 
uh, it shows the remarkable intellect that Adam had. But Adam could not correctly interpret his environment apart from revelation. Now, that's a crucial point for you to understand. When Adam looked at the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would not have discerned any difference between that fruit and all of the other fruit if God had not interpreted his environment for him and said, you can't eat that. If you do, you will instantly die. So revelation is always necessary for man to correctly interpret and understand his circumstances. So no matter if there may be a 99% similarity, it's that 1% difference that's fatal. So you always have to have divine viewpoint in order to correctly understand your environment. But Satan convinced Adam that he could think independently of God and come to truth, small t, truth as a result of uh, empiricism. Point number three, Adam and the woman became the first citizens in Satan's kingdom because at that point they became spiritually dead. Spiritually dead means that you are a citizen of Satan's domain, called the domain of darkness in the Scriptures. And that domain has its own philosophy of life. Point number four, the first act was that they tried to solve their problems on the basis of their own resources their own limited resources, so they went out and sewed fig leaves together to try to cover up the consequences of their sin. So we see in that initial act of sin in the garden all the characteristics that take place in, in uh, the first stages of reversionism. Self-absorption, self-indulgence, they ate the fruit, self-justification, it wasn't my fault, it was the serpent's fault, or it was the woman's fault, and self-deception, it really wasn't sin, We're really not afraid of you, Lord. We're just out here hiding behind these leaves because it felt like the thing to do at the time. So since Adam's fall, point number five, every human being is born into the kingdom of Satan, the domain of Satan, and we learn to think just like our father the devil. Remember, Jesus called the Pharisees, you are a liar like your father, you are of your father the devil. So we think just like Satan in terms of arrogance. This is what undergirds all cosmic thinking. Point number six, once we believe in Jesus Christ, then we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I think that's about Colossians 1, 7 or 8. We are transferred into the kingdom of the Son. This means, point number seven, that the believer is no longer spiritually dead, but he is spiritually alive, but spiritually ignorant. Just like a newborn baby. He has no comprehension of the world he's in. And all of the ideas that fill up the mentality of his soul are human viewpoint and false. So he has to go through a massive re-education. And that's what we're doing right now. That's what we do every Wednesday night in every Bible class is we have to learn how to think 
as God wants us to think and not think on the basis of rationalism and empiricism or mysticism or any other forms of human viewpoint thinking. Okay, point number eight. This means that God, in grace, has once again, just like He did with Adam in the garden, God, in grace, has interpreted reality for us. He has told us how we are to analyze, evaluate, and interpret reality. And that's given through Bible doctrine, through the Word of God. Point number nine. When the believer goes into reversionism, he completely rejects truth, and the result then is slavery. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you reject the truth, the opposite is slavery. Slavery to the sin nature, slavery to the lusts of the sin nature, slavery to the passions and emotions of the soul. So this is the characteristic of those who are friends of the world. They are operating on emotion. Even the term friend from uh, philos has with it the connotation not of a mental attitude, attraction, and love like agape, but of more of an emotional attraction. Uh, So the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then next time, we'll come back and look at verse 5. Verse 5 starts off, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? And then we have one of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament to translate. The first problem that we're going to see is that when James says, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? That the quote that follows is found nowhere in the Old Testament. The clue to this, I think, is in the word think, which we will discover, we're going to run into the same word Sunday morning in Galatians 6, dokeo. Dokeo always relates to the subjective thinking of the person in arrogance. Phreneo, the other word in the Greek for thinking, deals with objective thought. And we're going to see that the believer who needs to be restored in Galatians 6 is operating on dokeo type of thinking, subjective, arrogant thinking, just as the reversionist here is operating arrogantly. And so we will come back and pick this apart and figure out what verse 5 means next time, because in We can't accurately interpret it or apply it until we have a correct translation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the time we've had to look at Your Word. May we be challenged by what Your Word says about the dangers of reversionism and carnality and how this lurks around the corner for every one of us because we still have that that, uh, enemy, that traitor within the sin nature that is just as powerful and just as capable as it ever was and just as prone to evil. Father, we pray that we would be challenged by Your Word and we would be encouraged by the depths of Your grace and the breadth of Your solution in Jesus Christ that we may be driven forward in our spiritual growth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.